0: On episode 233, I'm interviewing Rian Fundamara, responsible for product at Postmark. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Rian Marva, a speaker, writer, and responsible for product at Postmark, which is part of Wildbit. Rion, thank you very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today.
1: Thanks, Jamin. Good to talk to you again after about a decade.
0: <laughs> it has yeah. literally been a decade since I've seen your face. I have been following you on social. You know, you, you had a, a book release a couple of years ago, which got a lot of publicity. And uh, I just ordered a copy of it, another copy of oh, it, actually. Cool. Lost my, Lost my other one. Before we jump into that, I'd like to start a little bit with your background. Tell us about your parents and how they have informed your career.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in in South Africa. I live in, in Portland now, but I've lived in a bunch of places uh, up to this point. So I grew up in a little town called Stellenbosch, which is uh, about 45 minutes outside of Cape Town. It's in wine country. Uh, I've lived in many places, and I still believe that's the the most beautiful town in the world. And I don't think that's even remotely biased. <laughs> we should put a photo in the show notes so people can uh, decide. So I grew up there, went to school there, went to university there. My mom was a stay at home mom uh my dad is an was an academic He worked at the University of stanbosch his entire career so you could imagine how weird it is for him uh how it was for him when we when I would like move from jobs for every four or five years. It was a really strange thing someone who worked in the same place for forty forty years uh his his field of study was geography in particular urbanization and uh He grew up on a farm, so his main academic focus, and this is relevant, I promise, I know, (laughs) we won't go too deep into urbanization, but it's relevant to to your question. His main area of focus was particularly small towns and why people move from small towns to cities, and Hmm. uh, particularly why those small towns still exist. So it's kind of coming at from a different perspective, instead of understanding City life. He was trying to understand how small towns continue to exist after most people have left, or after most, uh, or after its reason for existence have gone away. So the consulting he did was like he would go to small towns, and they would say, "Look, agriculture isn't a thing here anymore. What do we do? Like, how do we turn this into a tourist town? Or what? What? What, what other reason could there be for this?" And the reason is relevant here is that it really generated in me an intense curiosity for human behavior and how people live and work. Uh, I went on many of these trips with him to the smallest places in the country. And uh, he always talks about the sense of place and understanding a sense of place. And I think that curiosity, along with his uh, academic journey has really instilled in me that this idea of curiosity and a, and a thirst for constant learning, particularly as it relates to how people live and how they want to live and the meaning that they search for uh, in, in how they live. So he definitely had an enormous impact. Uh, I didn't become a geographer, but <laughs> the, the, the ways that he did his, did his work definitely still impacts me.
0: i I think that particular topic for me is one of tremendous passion so as you know you know when i started decipher in palo alto i relocated back to my hometown uh fresno which is Mm. about two two and a half hours away from silicon valley and it is exactly they call it brain drain here right so you've got like people that are whatever and then they get recruited and then they're gone and so you're as a byproduct of that you have the job creators You know, this sort of like vicious cycle, it's really hard for a local economy to be able to break out of a, um, you know, ag based or whatever, you know, was the old way of growing to support a, you know, uh, half a million people. Yeah.
1: Yeah you yeah. know and that's that was particularly pronounced in south africa but i see it here too uh, even in oregon uh, i think about a town like like bend uh, which is in eastern oregon a little ski town where when i visited everyone said you know that you you move to bend and then you figure out what you want to do <laughs> people right. move there because they want Lifestyle. to be in uh, yeah in that that specific area but then that Towns like that, like Fresno and maybe Bend, have this weird identity crisis where they're like, we don't know why we're here sometimes, right? Uh, and and that's very interesting to then un- uncover why they are actually there and and how they can hmm. make a living. And particularly yeah. now, like for for us as a remote company, for example, and and as we see more people work starting to move that way, and finally Silicon Valley becoming less important uh, in terms of of. Uh, hiring talent i think that's we're going to see that even more and more is people staying in their hometowns and i still fe- feel like that's a way to save cities in a way because and save towns because of those people staying means that they bring additional culture and additional reasons for being into that town i know we're off topic now but it's a really interesting discussion for me around the way that we work and and the future of work
0: yeah, it's something I've seen. Actually, there's a number of different companies that I follow that have been paying. A, are talking about this a lot. One of them is uh, SurveyMonkey, and they've been posting. You know, I think you know Silicon Valley as a ecosystem is feels a lot like, and you'll appreciate this. I think given your tenure there, feels a lot like 1999 uh, and 2000. I mean, the congestion is just it's insane, right? Mm-hmm. You know, working remote at that. And there's a there's an industry report that's done with the Bay Area Council for Economic development, over 30% of Bay Area employees are actively looking to move outside of the Bay Area. Hmm. And, and the reason why, for negative reasons as opposed to positive, excuse me. <clears throat> but, you know, the broader point is companies, as they wake up, are going to identify or empower uh, their employees to work wherever they so choose. But that for me, the big question is it's really hard to be in business like you can only do so many things well and I think managing a remote culture could be like one of the things you have to be disciplined and say okay this is going to be a priority for us yeah which then creates almost this like trade-off scenario of what things aren't we going to do
1: right but I think you're yes your trade-off is the right word because I think in that trade-off you're you don't need facilities management. (laughs) Like You save other things. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, right. We're a company of 30 people now that have been, and I haven't been there for 12 years, but they've been remote for 12 years. And we have someone on staff whose title is team happiness and operations. And that's what you're talking about, right? But we don't need a facilities manager or someone uh, that, that figures out how to expand office space. And I think, you're right in that there's a lot more companies talking about that Basecamp obviously talks about it a lot but then uh, there's buffer and there's uh, zapier all these companies that are remote only that are uh, doing this more and more and we're seeing that like you said a lot of people prefer that i don't know how i would ever uh, go back to not working remotely i think it's not for everyone but i think that the way that it's structured and the way that it allows me and the way i work to have uninterrupted hours of deep work and, and communicate asynchronously to my team has been invaluable for, for the way that I work.
0: So this is particularly interesting for me because we're like in the early stages of building a company. And one of my big challenges is I'm based in Fresno. Mm. So you have like this talent access issue. So like part of our question that we're answering right now is, is it okay to hire outside of the area? Mm. Are you finding that that has like, it almost like infringes on your family time? I guess is kind of the, the concern around it. Uh,
1: not for us. So we have a very interesting culture where we're currently experimenting with four day work weeks. Where we work, we so we work thirty two hours a week, uh, Monday through so Monday through thursday and uh since a lot of the team is in the east coast i actually schedule my hours so that i work east coast hours i work seven uh, six to three every day i like that not everyone <laughs> who wants to get up at five thirty, but i i like that so it doesn't uh, infringe on that at all in fact i get to go pick up my kids from school every day and it doesn't and the, the important thing i think is that you have a space like whenever we hire someone we say and, and we ask them where are you going to work they were like coffee shops or a couch they're like no you need to have mm-hmm. a space we're going to give you the furniture you you can't just work wherever like This is my office and I can close the door and I can work here. The sign on the door that says dad is on a call isn't always as effective as I want it to be, (laughs) 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 but uh, uh, for the most part, it works okay. (laughs) Uh, And so you have that. And, And the other thing I will say is I think why a lot of people are scared of this is that they try to recreate an office experience in a remote environment so there's a lot of, of synchronous work and that's where it would infringe with family time especially if you're across time zones whereas for us we have very few meetings during the week and we optimize for asynchronous communication so we post something in paper in dropbox paper and we say let it, let me know what you think within the next 2 days and then when someone else is needs a break from coding and they're going to they want to do something else for an hour they come out of that and this is a good break for them to then give feedback on that thing. And once you look at it that way, that it's, you're not recreating an office environment, you're actually optimizing for what remote work is good for. Like, let's say you record a podcast, you don't need to edit it with someone in person, they can work on it when when they're ready. Right. Um, and you can give feedback that way. So uh, I would encourage it, I would say. <laughs> and that is if.
0: So what tool, this could probably be very relevant for our listeners, what tools do you recommend companies Uh, look at when they're thinking about in creating a remote culture. Uh, I'm not
1: going to say Slack. We're actually very, very anti-Slack. We have very strict rules around Slack. You don't have to be in... A lot of remote companies would say, when you're you're working, you're in Slack. We don't have that rule. We don't make any decisions in Slack. You're not required to come back after you were away and read through a thread and and understand what just happened. We try to use Slack for troubleshooting real-time issues on the site or making some announcements, but no real-time work actually happens there. Our work happens in Dropbox Paper, which is like a Google Docs competitor, but it just feels less permanent. And then we use Basecamp for a more permanent uh, communication. And then this is going to sound weird, but we like email. Uh, we like email better than Slack. Before we send someone a, a direct message in Slack, we would say, "Well, do I need to interrupt them right now, or can this be an email that they get back to?" In fact, one of the people who work with us, Derek, built a Slack app called Pigeonbot that you can download that lets you email someone from within Slack. So instead of sending them a DM, you would type slash email, and it would send them an email instead of interrupting them at that at that particular time.
0: I am 100% going to use that app. <laughs> It's
1: fantastic. Yeah. Yes, we love yeah. It.
0: yeah, for sure. Let's shift gears a little bit and get back on track. I'm really excited about hearing your perspective on this. Tell me about a time uh, you had a difficult experience in life and uh, came out of it, you know, how you how you manage that.
1: Yeah, as I thought about this, because I, I, I knew this question was coming, it was a really hard one to think about. But I think the one I want to settle on that's maybe particularly relevant here is, and for your listeners, is just uh, me as a foreigner breaking into technology in Silicon Valley. That was super hard because I, I finished my studies in Australia. I just studied for seven and a half years and didn't stop. So by the end of it, I had I had a PhD, but I had zero from a foreign university and i had zero work experience and i met my wife in australia and followed her to the us and started looking for jobs and i realized it was completely impossible like i don't i don't have a visa (laughs) uh i am I was here legally, but as a tourist, like I couldn't work, but I wanted to stay here. We decided at that point that we wanted to stay here. So I remember I spent the Christmas of 2003 on, on monster.com. Does anyone remember Monster? Totally. The job, that that epic,
0: did? epic uh, Super Bowl ad company, right? Yes.
1: We're, we're both aging ourselves a little bit here. Uh, but <laughs> for the young ones, that's how we used to find jobs. <laughs> it's on a website called monster.com. Uh, spent eight hours a day on, on there and eventually found a job at a market research firm, which is where I first encountered uh, Decipher uh, at survey.com. And it wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but it was the only thing that I could pull off. And that part was Really hard is just to convince someone that with taking a chance on, and I'm really glad that they did that. And then after that, I moved to eBay and. Decipher moved over with me and that's why we're still friends. And (laughs) i like think there's more Uh, to it, but yeah, good point. Yeah, sure. But yeah, yeah. Uh, But that was really hard. And I remember at eBay in particular, whenever my badge opened the door, I I never got used to it. Like when Hmm. I swiped my badge, I always wanted to call my mom and said, you'd never guess what just happened. They let me in again.
0: (laughs) And I think of all my experiences in, in the U.S., so coming in as a, I, the the badge swiping at eBay is like, I literally, I don't know, you probably don't know. This, so I, I smuggle out, you know how you have to return the badges when you visit mm. a, okay. So I literally will hide the badge and tell them I've lost, I will lie and tell mm. them I've lost it because for me, this is like this, it's a really, cause it's like, these are the, these are the companies that are impacting our world. Yeah. And so it's such a, it's such a neat thing to be able to, you know, literally put them into my, uh. It's not really a scrapbook per se, but it's my notebook, you know, that notes relevant for that particular day in the meeting. So anyway, it's a big deal. I never
1: got used to it. It was when they printed the thing and I wondered if everyone was like me also lying in bed, just staring at it at night. And I don't think they were, but (laughs) um, for someone who grew up in a small town, that just like, this was never on my radar and the ability to eventually make it there. And I know I came at this whole experience with a ton of privilege, but the being able to get into America and, and be in that environment and just feel like I'm getting smarter through osmosis. I don't even have to hmm. do anything. I just go to lunch really? with people who are so incredibly smart. And I, I never forget that. And uh, it's still to this day is the thankfulness around being able to do that is why I still love what I do what I do because it's that again that constant learning and that thirst for knowledge and that curiosity mm. that comes from my dad and his work is still with me in, in, in that challenge and I don't know how far you want to go into the challenge but uh, we did move to to Silicon Valley with a blow up mattress and a coffee maker and that's it like we had nothing and I remember oh my God. Uh, I, I walked I didn't have a car so I got an apartment right across from work so I could get to work and uh, lucky for us there was a a blockbuster and a Safeway across the road too. Right. Well, we didn't have a TV, but uh, it's, but there was a blockbuster for eventually. And I, I, I walked down to the Salvation Army and and bought a chair for twenty dollars, but I couldn't, I didn't have a way to get it back to my apartment, so I walked back, got my passport, gave them my passport, and then they lent me a dolly so that I could push the thing, and then, I, <laughs> and then I went back and picked up my passport, and then I wanted a TV to, so I took the bus to Best Buy. And uh, I bought a TV and lugged it in the bus. People thought I was crazy. Uh, Back to the apartment. Didn't have anything to put it on. So it sat on a box for six, six, on the box it came in for six months. And that's how we started. And what a great story. But I just think about it. The ability to start like that and just keep going and eventually keep going and going and then be here in Portland now in this in this wonderful place that we're at is is such a testament for what is possible still here. I know we're 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 not gonna talk about politics, but I know it's kind of weird here right now. But it's still like I I hang on to that memory of what is possible and and the, how that challenge shaped us and my relationship with my wife and and mm-hmm. how we're thinking about these things.
0: Yeah, it is. I love this story. My best friend It has a very similar story. He's from, uh, he, he grew up in a, literally grew up in a mud hut in Transylvania, transplanted here in seventh grade and had a tremendous amount of difficulty fitting in, right? Mm. And yet now, you know, he's beautiful family, makes way more money than I ever have, um, <laughs> you know, tremendously successful, happy, happy uh, guy. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, There is a, you know, America still is a land of opportunity and you can, in a lot of ways, if you take responsibility and have the humility, that's the other part of it, right? I mean, you have to kind of like check, you have to be willing to check your humility at the door uh, or sorry, yourself at the door in order to Mm. um, attain and grow. And like you said, take the bus with the with the TV <laughs> yeah right? or more the dolly with the chair I love that like that yeah. picture that would have been worth that would be something worth putting on your mantle right um
1: yeah I was i i eventually we had to get rid of the chair and I was really sad about that because as as awful and and bug infested as I'm sure it was uh, it, it was it was super comfortable and also just this memory of that that I don't want us to forget you know I don't want us to forget right. where that where that came from.
0: So over the last 10 years, we have seen a bunch of new roles emerge in the insight space, Uh, data science, as you know, you know, Python R have come on the kind of like usurped old school SPSS, user experience research, customer experience research. How are these different than market research?
1: Yeah, it's something I thought about a lot, particularly when I was at eBay. So my background is in is in research and, and market research. And when I moved to eBay, I was in the user experience design team specifically on quantitative user experience research. So I, I thought about this a lot. You know, it's it's very fashionable even back then to bad mouth focus groups. And so I was trying to understand like <laughs> where does all this come from. Mm-hmm. But where I've settled particularly with market research and user experience research is that I've always felt like market research seeks to understand the needs of a market in general it's concerned with brand equity marketing position attitudes so additional surveys and focus groups help you a lot with that But I think the reason some of these other roles have come in is that it's, particularly with digital products, hard to use those methods in the design of those products themselves. So I still think market research is incredibly important for understanding those kinds of things, like what are my customers like? How do I position this product? But when it comes to figuring out and interactions with a product that's where user research comes in it's, it's concerned with how people interact with technology human computer interaction and what we can learn from their wants needs and frustrations so that combination of those two has always have always been really important to me first understanding the market we're in but then building a product that actually serves that market I think is the is more of the role of user research
0: the methodologically speaking like it feels like you know, we're doing a lot of the same, I know there's some differences too, a lot of the same types of, of work. Do you think part of it, of that, of user experience or uh, is happening, is, is it the place that it sits in the org structure, like that job function sits in the org structure? In other words, is it more of like a just-in-time insight, which market research historically has not been able to facilitate because it usually sits outside of it. It's kind of its own thing.
1: Uh, that's a really interesting question. I th- I think you might be right. And I think one of the shifts we're seeing too is that it's becoming more and more important for people to understand the company they're engaged with, not just the product. We see it, I mean, the most obvious example is Facebook. Like, no one is just interested in Facebook, the product anymore. They're super right. interested in Facebook, the company, and all these right. ethical questions around it. Same with even Google and all these other big companies. So I think we're getting to a point where market research and user research need to. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think particularly around ethical questions and understand and, and helping people understand the company they're doing business with, I think those things need to be more connected and, and possibly, like you said, the issue is that they're in different orgs right now. User research is always set in the design function, mm-hmm. whereas an interaction with the company is also user research. And so that overlap, I think, is becoming more and more prevalent, but our organizations aren't Structured for that yet.
0: Yeah, for technology companies this kind of gets to From my from my vantage point one of the really important issues Especially for newer firms how when and where should they be using consumer insights and and Even a little bit more context like so Y Combinator They have this fairly new product that they've brought to market called startup school they have and it's like a 10-week program free this last cohort that they had, they have 23, I believe it's 23,000 companies globally that, have, that are participating in it, which is a freaking gigantic number of, of startups. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess the full frame there is, you know, Consumer Insights definitely has a, a role and a, and a place. And, you know, I think it's really interesting for technology companies to have that framework of like the how, when, and where should they use those insights.
1: Yeah. So my view on this has uh, shifted a little bit over the years as well. And uh, when I, back in the day, when I was at eBay, there was we, we had a user experience research team of about 15 people and a market research team of about 10 or something like that. And that's all they did. But it was among over 10,000 employees. Where I'm at now, which is a small 30-person company, I, I always like to say that research is something and talking to customers is something we are. It's not something we do. This is something that Permeate everything we do. Everyone's involved. Our developers often get involved in first-line support when there's a technical issue. Since my background is in research, even though I'm product manager now, I still talk to customers a lot. I sometimes handle sales calls if our salesperson is is on vacation mm-hmm. or something. Our designers do usability testing and user research. Like everyone talks to customers. And that it relates to a, uh, another product concept that a woman named Teresa Torres talks about a lot, which is continuous discovery, which is this idea that we need to talk to customers every week mm. on a continuous basis so that research isn't a project we do, and then it informs our product. It's something we do continuously. We build up our knowledge and our base knowledge about our customers Mm -hmm. as we do this continuous discovery with customers we build up a, a backlog of insights about them so that when it's time to work on something new we don't necessarily have to go and you do a new project we know so much already because we talk to them every week so i'm a big proponent of that i'm not moving away from this idea that research is a project as opposed to research is just a thing we continuously do so that we understand our customers because that informs everything we do
0: so when you think about like the differences of qualitative and quantitative research do you think like leveraging qualitative on a week you know thinking about your like your weekly cycle framework is it is that more centric to idi type
1: yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely more uh, yeah, in-depth interviews. We have moved away from NPS. Hmm. I don't know how you guys feel about NPS these days. I know on the product side, it's kind of fallen out of fashion. Uh, we replaced NPS with, so the company Superhuman, I forget the name of the CEO, but um, they wrote an article in First Round, which I can find for you about a survey they use that basically says, how disappointed would you be if this product went away?
0: Yeah, I've seen that.
1: Yeah. And then, and, and why? Um, so we replaced NPS with that. And, and we look at that consistently just to, as, a, as how many people would be extremely dissatisfied if we went away and, and why? So we try to summarize that about once a month. So those are the only, that's the only ongoing quantitative work we do. The rest is is ongoing qualitative work. And we try to, we use a product called Product Board, which is product management software, but we use that to collect all our insights in one place I really like the way they're set up in terms of gathering insights from a bunch of different places and then categorizing them and tagging them so that when it becomes time to work on something, we can actually do a search and go back and understand all the, all the
0: people we've talked to in the past about different things. I'll definitely check them out. I haven't heard of them before. Yeah, that CEO also released a... Our has a strong point of view. I can't remember the article title, but it was, if I remember correctly, it was like, it was product market fit is a lagging indicator. And you.
1: That's where I've, yes, that's where this is from. Yeah. It was a very long article as, as they usually are in the first round. So yeah. Yeah. That's where (laughs) we got that
0: from. (laughs) Yeah. And so he actually had some methodology associated, you know, ultimately uh, trying to get it to be a leading indicator, which is a different, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously a very different framework. I I can't, gosh, it's been a, a couple, actually I just saw that like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting that you're bringing it up right now on the podcast. The how, when, and where part, I want to I dig in just a tiny bit. I guess the where that you're talking about is really everywhere, right? As it relates mm-hmm. with the. Do you use yeah. your, I can't remember the name of his non MPS, MPS, or the MPS replacement question, yeah, which I, I really like? Like, you know, yeah. how upset would you be if, anyway, um, your product's no longer available to use? But anyway, whatever that is, and I'll, I'll include the link to that, by the way, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Is that sent every time? Because the way your customers interact with you on, is on a SaaS basis, right? Yeah. Are you guys doing that on an annual basis per customer, or is it quarterly, we monthly? Do,
1: we do it 30 days after they become a paying customer.
0: Got it. And um, then that cycle so th- repeats every 12 months?
1: So every every day we send... Every day. Every day we send to whoever signed, whoever became a paying customer 30 days ago. So they come in consistently. They actually go straight to Help Scout. They go every response goes into our uh, support queue. And then where they either get filed away or if there's something serious or if, what often happens is someone would say, because one of the questions is, uh, is the, what would you add to Postmark if you could? Like, what's one thing you would, yeah. you would change? And often someone would say something we already have or they would say something that we have planned. And then our support team would actually respond to them and say, well, and, and give them and help them out. So we look at every response before it then gets filed away. And then we try to do some kind of summary later on in the every month.
0: You know, this is such a big opportunity for companies to employ a methodology like that. And if you're systematic with it, one of the things that I learned in Decipher was we had a similar kind of like sequencing. You know, we we're project based for about half the revenue as opposed to SaaS, but so I created more opportunity to touch the customer. But when we would have a detractor, if in the following three months, we could convert them to a promoter using the NPS vernacular, then mm. that was our number one word of mouth lead gen. Hmm. So yeah. like, not, i'm not suggesting that we should create a bad experience turn it into a great experience but i mean it was it, it's one way it to we, go <laughs> again you know that would be a you lot should, of pain just that on medium I, i'm sure people will love it <laughs> you know what i that actually would be a fun that, i feel like i'd be a troll but yeah anyway yeah all right so what is the biggest issue that's facing today's technology product creators
1: you know i really think and i don't want to be weird about it but i really think it is taking responsibility for the ethical implications of the things that we make i think mm-hmm. that it's it's been it's too long that we talk about product design and user interface design we talk about how things work and what they look like we don't talk about why they exist and we've seen what happens when we don't talk about why things exist and if things should exist i don't even have to give examples everyone knows i think what i'm talking about from uber through facebook through all the google stuff all that and i think that we have for too long said well we'll just we just do the thing we just make the thing technology is neutral the point is that it's not and i think that everything we make has has a systemic bias in it and i think our biggest challenge is, first of all, convincing people that this is important, an important part of our jobs. And then and then second of all, asking the right questions when we make things to make sure that we build in ways to, to prevent products, the, the products that we make to be used for harm. Yeah. And I know what that sounds like. I feel like it sounds like such a pretty answer, but I've, I'm serious about that. I feel like we've messed up and <laughs> we have to do better.
0: So there's two distinct areas that I think are getting a lot of focus right now. One is privacy and the way that companies can use our behavioral data in order to market to us to create, you know, like, for example, probably Amazon knows what I'm going to buy next month, whereas I have no idea what I'm going to buy this afternoon, right? So, you know, that kind of a reviewed that kind of a perspective is just unfair to me as a consumer. Yeah. The other obvious Example to me is like social media is just so good as a tool that it's especially like I have countless examples of people almost dying <laughs> because they're prefer they're prefer you're right you know what I mean it's like that that need for the endorphin is uh, the dopamine yeah. is so great right so yeah. is that is that what you're alluding to.
1: Yeah, I am I think I'm referring to a couple of things. I think one of the things that is really popular in Silicon Valley right now is the idea of habit-forming products. Mm-hmm. And there's books written about how to basically hack people's psychology to get them addicted to your product. And I just think that's not good. We shouldn't be doing that. And on, on the other side of that, I also think that there's a systemic bias in the things that we make. And we, there's lots of examples of this when you train AIs just using a certain kind of face, it doesn't recognize a different kind of face that might be a different color right. or a different ethnicity because we don't ha- no one thinks about that because right. we, we don't have just don't have enough diversity in, in the people who make the products that we make. And we also don't take responsibility for that. So I think that there's the ethical implication there's there's the the a recognition of the bias that is inherent in every product that we make. Because algorithms don't make decisions. People who make algorithms make decisions. Right. And, and if that is not acknowledged, we get ourselves into trouble. Uh, Twitter is another great example. The abuse on Twitter that almost, I don't want to say easily, but that could be avoided if there are people on staff who understand how abuse works. Hmm. But there's probably not. Because that's not the type of people who are making Twitter right now, and I don't want to. I don't want to get emails from people. But <laughs> uh, so
0: but you're think, saying it, it's. It sounds like it's more like a, in alignment with Wall Street, right? Like the expectations of shareholders and what's going to drive that. An investment of millions of dollars into abuse prevention is not necessarily something that's going to. Well, probably not at all going to increase, unless you know what I'm saying. Unless that has exactly the other yeah, side of it of user uh, yeah, user this, gains.
1: For the longest time, it's been growth above all else, right? And then Mm -hmm. figure out monetization later. So when you have growth above all else, that's how things like growth hacking get started. That's Mm -hmm. how, uh, which has a bunch of unethical practices in it. I'm not saying VC money is bad and we shouldn't have it, but I'm saying your priorities change and your users aren't your most important people anymore. As an example, at Postmark, we, we, we send email. We're a transactional email service. It sounds boring, but it's really exciting. I'm very fun at parties. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If you want to talk about email. Um, But we send email. But one of the things that we talk about a lot is we make a tool for developers, but we also want to understand how can we actually be good for people's inboxes as well. So how do we get developers to send fewer emails? like if they're going you know, to trigger so transactional email or trigger emails right so they're like password resets but also often notifications say so someone comments on a post how can we encourage them to not send 10 emails and make a digest of one instead we'll make less money but we will save a person's inbox we're not saving the world here we do email but that's the kind of thing that i would love for us to think about more and that you can mm-hmm. do if if you're not beholden to yeah. growth above all else is how do we actually improve people's lives and not just go for growth at all costs. Uh, Paul Jarvis has a great book that I just finished reading called Company of One that is great read for not just freelancers and uh, but for anyone who works in any company about sustainable growth and how that's possible. Again, I'm not sure if we are running like away from things. But I think that is our challenge hmm. is how do we get away from growth at all costs? Because we're losing so much of our humanity when we do growth at all costs.
0: What is your personal motto?
1: <laughs> I thought of I don't have one. I thought about this question a lot. I have a few rules and I think the most important one is when I see something in an email or in a post, particular at work, that I get emotional about and I start typing. I just, I stop and I go, give it eight hours. And I set a timer and I don't, <laughs> I don't respond for eight hours because things need time. And I don't want to respond from, from a place of emotion, particularly when you're a remote company, that's really easy to do Um to not see the the meaning behind the words and to get offended or whatever. And after that eight hours, I usually have an amazing, excellent response <laughs> that is not emotional. Right. Uh And, uh, but I think that's the big thing. And then my dad just always talks about we cross that bridge when we get there. And I know that's not <laughs> a new thing, but it's like uh, as a product manager, there's there's lots of things that you might want to cross before the bridge is there. And uh, we should just wait sometimes. Just give it eight hours.
0: Oh, uh, like that distance between the emotional reaction and the output of that, right? The Whether it's words or actions. Um, I think that's, that's something all of us could do maybe a little bit better job yeah. of. It's funny
1: how... Yeah, I'm, st- I'm still learning. Sometimes I ignore my own advice, but for the most part, I give it eight hours.
0: <laughs> for me, that's really good in marriage, by the way. So like that and, oh, yes. and, and uh, yes. raising kids. So like, you don't
1: always have eight hours, but it take five minutes. I know.
0: <laughs> I'm going to put a pin in that just for a minute. Yeah, yeah. 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 I do, before we close out, I do want to talk a little bit about your blog. So you've had a long-standing blog on product. Can you mm. talk to us a little and a newsletter? Uh, I love your newsletter, by the way. I really do. I Thank I read you. it. Cool. Every time it comes through, not in a, more of like a bullet, depending on my time, but it's very insightful and I always pull something out. I love the references to other people's work. That is also great. And you're active on Twitter, pushing the same, uh, you know, similar, obviously, in uh, Twitter context, but Hmm. maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that work, where it spawned from and yeah, kind of your inspiration, I think would be really interesting and then what you cover.
1: Yeah, so I'm coming up on 10 years on the Elysia blog. The first post was in August 2009. Um, and I remember it because it was just after I resigned at eBay and we decided to move back to South Africa. And, and back to that original initial discussion we had of getting smarter by osmosis is that I felt like I was in this incredible environment surrounded by people and uh i was moving back to south africa that has a a less developed technology culture and i was so scared of losing that um that i decided to start this blog um at that point it was just a blog as a way to force myself to keep learning back to the keep learning thing like just to keep myself honest so that i don't lose that and that ended up being the best decision I ever made for my career. That, that led to publishing on Smashing Magazine. It led to the book. It led to multiple jobs. I have one regret, and that is not choosing a better domain name. <laughs> <laughs> if I have one, one recommendation, is don't choose a domain name that no one can remember or pronounce or spell. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> <laughs> that is a bad thing but now 10 years later there's nothing i can do about it like it's it's built up all this yeah stuff in google and i can't change it but i thought i was being smart i wanted five letters and it has this great meaning it's a swahili word that means to elucidate to clarify it has this great thing and a great logo but no one can ever remember it and no one wants to pronounce it it's elizia no i was wants wondering to about that, that. Yeah,
0: I was, yeah i was a little bit hesitant yeah. to can botch that as well. No one wants to say it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a fantastic uh, source. And by the way, uh, Insights Nation, it is 100 percent free, which is also remarkable. Have you thought about a paid structure for that for that content?
1: I do have that. Oh, now. do you really? I, Sorry. More as a more as a more as a patronage uh, setup. That's because it it as I'm going on 10 years. You know, I did the math, and the the site costs me. Quite a bit every month in 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 hosting and time and I pay for MailChimp like this all these things that I just pay for and have for a very long time and yeah. just realized you know I'm entering the second decade of this thing and as I did that I thought what do I really want to do and I was like I just want to keep writing mm. um, so I so there's a patronage thing that's like three bucks a month or something just and there's there's nothing special but it. it's just if someone if if people find value in it just I just want to break even with it at some point, where it's like it's not actually costing me anything every month. That's all I want. So we're not quite there yet. I'm not surprised you don't know about it because it's not something I push very hard. It's just like I want to eventually.
0: We will. We will definitely jump on that wagon. I listen. So (laughs) I will make one recommendation that I've seen work really well, and that on the paid side, and that is stickers. So like if somebody (laughs) is stupid, right? So it costs a couple bucks to manufacture, but you know if somebody jumps on the bandwagon for like a 12 month or whatever kind of thing. They get a sticker then they can put, you know, laptop sticker. Yeah. And it kind of has this like, almost like I'm part of this thing. That's cool. Right. Yeah. Connection to yeah, it.
1: Yeah. I've I've definitely thought about, I've, I've, I'd love to do a run of t-shirts. Not that I'm daring fireball, but I'd love to do that at some point. I was linked once eight years ago, but that's a different <laughs> story. But I would, uh, yeah, I, I I do send people a, a PDF copy of the book uh, if they if they sign up for that. But yeah, stickers is a is a better idea, I
0: think. Um, My guest today has been Rion Fundemerva. Marva. How'd I do? That's excellent, man. <laughs> so good. Speaker writer. Please don't
1: put <laughs> don't put that video in the show notes, please. <laughs> I'm gonna have. I won't. Don't <laughs> worry. I'll
0: put your improvement. Speaker writer <laughs> and responsible for product at Postmark. It has been an absolute pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you so much, Rion, for being on the show today.
1: Thanks, Jamin. That was great.
0: Everyone else, if you would please take the time to screenshot, share this on social media, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, your five-star ratings mean that other people like you will be able to find this show. If you have any feedback, content you would like added to it or just stuff that you hate about me, uh, feel free to email <laughs> feel free to email me. Email me. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> feel free to yeah. Uh, email me at Jamin, J A M I N at happymr.com. com. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G three Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in, probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.